Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Science, technology, engineering, and mathematics education, STEM, is a critical need for the United States, especially since math skills of American students keep dropping. The National Science Foundation has been funding research into STEM education for many years. My next guest has led that effort as the Deputy Assistant Director of NSF's Directorate for STEM Education, and now she's a Presidential Rank Award winner. Sylvia Butterfield joins me now. Dr. Butterfield, good to have you with us. Hi, Tom. It's my pleasure to join you, and I must say that I am honored to have been named as a Presidential Rank Award recipient. Yeah, it's very august company, and a couple of questions. Let's begin with the fact that you have two jobs at the moment besides the permanent job as Deputy Assistant Director. You're also the Acting Assistant Director for NSF's Directorate for Social, Behavioral, and Economic Sciences. That seems like a plateful Yes, it is. But, you know, as senior executives, we are expected to be able to assume leadership roles across the agency, indeed across the federal government. But I'm really enjoying my time as the acting assistant director for the Social Behavior and Economic Sciences Directorate. It is an area where I have the greatest respect for the work that they do in terms of psychology, sociology, economics, you name it. But we find that it is really critical to consider the impact of various activities on people and society. And that's one of the contributions that the SBE, Social Behavior and Economic Sciences Directorate, can offer. And I imagine SBE has kind of a long border with education, too, for that matter. Absolutely. We have collaborated with the SBE directorate on many occasions, especially in one area we call the science of broadening participation. As you know, part of our mission is to ensure that we are creating opportunities everywhere for people in the sciences, and that means addressing the diversity of the STEM workforce and ensuring that all Americans have access to high-quality STEM education. And let's talk about the work you've done 20 years now, I think it is, at the NSF in overseeing this area. Tell us what happens in the STEM Education Directorate. What do you do there, and what are the kinds of institutions that receive the funding? That's a great question. So the STEM Education Directorate has four divisions, the Division of Undergraduate Education, the Division of Graduate Education, the Division of Excellence for Equity in STEM, as well as the Division of Research on Learning. So we cover the gamut from K-12, which is research on learning, and that includes in-school and out-of-school, to undergraduate, graduate education, and then the Division of Excellence for Equity in STEM is home to programs that target the work in minority-serving institutions. So there's a program for Hispanic-serving institutions, as well as historically Black colleges, programs that address how women are integrated into the STEM workforce and more. So NSF, through our funding, we are supporting institutions of higher education. But in the Division of Research on Learning, what brought me to NSF was a program that focuses on out-of-school learning. The current name is Advancing Informal STEM Learning. So that includes support for museums, science centers, 
zoos, aquaria, et cetera. And those programs really help to complement what goes on in the K-12 classroom and the support that we provide for teachers, teacher training, and curriculum development. And what's your sense of the state? I mean, I made a statement about it. That's my opinion of education in these fields, because if you look at everything in the future, the economic competition, the military competition, the strategic competition in the world will take Americans that are good at algebra, trigonometry, calculus, and thinking in mathematical ways. I mean, I consider mathematics almost as a language as much as a you know, thing you calculate. And so what are the grand challenges here? That's a great question. I think, and this is just my opinion, I think what we try to do is to take into consideration all of the things that you talked about and the fact that the way that people learn has evolved over the years because there's a lot more integration of technology, artificial intelligence, et cetera. And so what we try to do is to provide resources for academic institutions to create cutting-edge learning that's evidence-based, using evidence from research to show what are the most effective strategies for learning. And again, we address both in-school and out-of-school learning, but most of the programs within the divisions that I mentioned are focused on learning in the traditional classroom setting. But when I say traditional, I mean in-school only because what's traditional now is very different from what may have been the case when I was in school some years ago. So you need to take into consideration online learning. Think about how we all had to pivot to online learning during the pandemic. You need to take into consideration the availability of resources that make hands-on learning so much more engaging for young people. And I think collectively, the programs that NSF provides funding for such as the Discovery Research K-12 program, providing resources for models and learning opportunities for K-12 teachers as well as students. And many other programs, the IU's Improving Undergraduate STEM Education. These programs are evolving as the research shows how to best integrate these tools into STEM learning. And when I say STEM, of course, I mean science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Sure. We're speaking with Dr. Sylvia Butterfield. She's Deputy Assistant Director for the Directorate for STEM Education at the National Science Foundation and a new Presidential Rank Award winner. And the Presidential Rank Award announcement doesn't say much about the recipients. What is the work you feel that got you the Rank Award here? As you mentioned (laughs) earlier on, you know, I have been at the National Science Foundation for over 20 years. I came in 2000 as what's called a rotator under the Intergovernmental Personnel Act, where you're on loan from an institution to the government for anywhere from one to three years. And I must say that over that period of time, I've had an opportunity to do so much that it's hard for me to summarize succinctly, but I'll say some of the things that I've done, you know, you mentioned early on my role in leading STEM education programs. So 
I've had the opportunity to develop, manage, and lead programs for K-12 students that are national level initiatives. As the acting assistant director for a year, I spent a year as the acting assistant director for STEM education. I was able to oversee the budget at that time was $1.1 billion. There are 28 programs in all investing in foundational and youth-inspired research with the goal of achieving excellence in U.S. STEM education programs at all levels. I'm very much involved in interagency working groups. In fact, I uh, served as co-chair of the FC STEM Federal Coordination and STEM Subcommittee for a number of years. And I also served as co-chair for FC STEM working groups, such as the Broadening Participation Interagency Working Group and the Interagency Working Group on Inclusion in STEM. I've been division director for what is now called the the Division of Excellence for Equity in STEM. That was my first senior executive level appointment. That was when I was approved to become a member of the Senior Executive Service. And the last thing I'll mention is during fiscal years 2017, to 2020, each agency, as you know, takes part in FEVS, the Federal Executive Viewpoint Survey. And our directorate, we always have to develop what we call FEVS action plans to address areas where we need to improve. And we saw a increase in scores from 2017 to 2019, and then in 2020 and 2021, such that the Directorate for STEM Education received an award for being the number one best agency subcomponent in the federal government based on fiscal year 2021 Fed scores. So I would say, you know, over the years, I've served in many capacities, served on many internal and interagency working groups. But of course, I would not be able to achieve anything without the incredible staff and colleagues that I have had the privilege of working with at the National Science Foundation. So while I was named as the recipient for this Presidential Rank Award, it was definitely a group effort because I've worked with the most incredible people at NSF over the past 20 years. And as a victim of the School Mathematics Study Group, I'd like to ask you, are you optimistic about STEM education, especially math? I'm optimistic about STEM education. Between the work that NSF is supporting, the work of our colleagues at the Department of Education, we know that the research that we're investing in will enable us to make the improvements that are needed to see increases in performance across the nation. So someday Johnny can read and Johnny can do calculus. Dr. Sylvia Butterfield is Deputy Assistant Director of the Directorate for STEM Education at the National Science Foundation and a Presidential Rank Award winner this year. Thanks so much for joining me. It's been my pleasure. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. 
Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and in the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, 
is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it? and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight... I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm-hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear 
for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer. And I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency. So we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent 
um, career positions in leadership that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.